And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Welcome back to the Iowa Caucus Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, John Hurl, and I'm very excited to share with you episode number 15 of the show today. For today's episode, which will be uh, the last one to air before the Iowa caucuses take place on February 3rd, uh, we bring in NBC's Mara Barrett to talk about a couple of pieces that she's written recently about security concerns uh, with the Democratic reporting caucus, caucus reporting app and uh, youth voting, as well as Drake political science professor Dennis Goldford, uh, who will come in and talk about his kind of caucus night predictions and what he's seen uh, that's going to influence the caucuses. So uh, without further ado, here's my interview with Mara Barrett. Mara Barrett is a campaign embed reporter for NBC News covering 2020 from Iowa and on the road across the country. Previously, she produced for NBC's business and tech unit after starting in breaking news covering the Northeast region for NBC. She's traveled all over the country in the pursuit of good journalism, making stops at farms and manufacturing plants across the Midwest to discover tariff impacts, events like CES and South by Southwest, and to reflect on the interference of technology in today's world, and various election headquarters as politics constantly intersects with business today. She balances out hard news coverage with fun features on workplace trends, small businesses, and social media. Uh, Mara, thank you so much for being here, and thank you to NBC for setting this up. Yeah, thanks, John. So I want to talk about a couple pieces that you've recently written, mm -hmm. uh, one about election security, uh, specifically with the caucuses, and another about uh, the youth vote. Mm -hmm. uh, so as far as election security, uh, you recently wrote a story about uh, concerns with the app uh, that the Democratic Party plans on using to report caucus night results. Uh, first off, can you explain why the Democratic Party wants to move towards this app? Sure. So first and foremost, I think what they told us, the Iowa Democrats, they're they're very they're looking at solving for some issues that have been problems in the past, namely um, timing. With the caucuses, because obviously it's a long process, it, it goes throughout the night, and so there's a lot of changes in the rules um, this cycle. And so one of them is that there's only two alignments, and so hopefully that'll be a quicker process. But the app is something that they're hoping will expedite reporting um, throughout the night because the caucus chairs that are taking tallies of what the answers are and what the votes are or the selections, as I guess we should call it, um, they'll be they'll be sending those back via the app, or they can use some other methods that they've used in the past. But the app is just mainly for efficiency. And can you tell me kind of how Democratic Party leaders, like I mentioned, there are security concerns about this app, uh, and there's also concerns that the app could flat out just not work and it could fail. Uh, how are Democratic Party leaders addressing specifically uh, those concerns about failure and security issues? Uh, what are they telling you uh, when you address those questions to them? Sure. So I think anytime technology is involved in an election, there's going to be some wariness, right? Like I covered a lot of the social media disinformation campaign that happened with Russian Twitter bots back in 2016. And so I think especially because of that, people are super sensitive anytime technology gets involved, which is why we decided to look into this app for our reporting with my colleague Ben Popkin on NBCNews.com. And basically, the Iowa Dems tell us that 
you know, the, the caucusers that you choose to use the apps will go through a specific training so that they can learn how to use it, make sure they use it efficiently, that the math all goes in there well. And and then if it doesn't work, you know, we've all seen our phones crash. We've seen apps not, not go through or whatever happens. They say they have a backup to the backup to the backup. Like they and they, you know, in terms of, of keeping security private, they were very vague about what those backups might be, um, as well as the protections that they have on the app. And when we reported this about a week ago, I believe they weren't clear on what testing had been done to secure the app. They weren't done. They weren't clear on whether the app had been fully developed and gone through any third party submitting process to make sure that it's perfectly secure. So they're being vague for the purpose of they don't want other people to try to then, you know, hack through whatever the answers that they're giving us are. And so it makes sense. However, you know, we, we always have to ask the questions, but they, they are adamant that there are backups. Um, you know, the, the caucusers could revert back to, to the normal methods that they have for reporting in past cycles. Um, there's some, you know, phone like secure phone line options that they could use as well. Yeah. One of the Parts of the piece talks about uh, uh, Democratic Party chairman of Iowa, uh, Troy Price, Price, you know, reassuring you uh, that there are many backups behind just that that app that you mentioned. And specifically talking about you, you know, I, I read your bio at the beginning of the interview. Uh, you have an intimate knowledge of the tech world and in tech reporting and specifically tech clashing with politics. Like you mentioned, you covered the 2016 uh, Russian bot hacks. Uh, how has that helped you personally cover this story, uh, your knowledge and your understanding of tech issues in politics? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think if anything, it's just made me even more skeptical of any technology involved in something that's important as American democracy. Um, I'm also extremely skeptical of social media in general. And so even when we're covering the election, whether it's about security on actual election night. I've been out in Iowa for eight months and we cover ads that uh, candidates drop, whether it be on TV or online. You know, there's the conversations around Facebook and Twitter. Twitter decided to ban political ads while Facebook says that they're not going to fact check them. And so social media and technology are just such a, a ingrained part of American culture. People expect it to be part of, you know, something like the 2020 election because it's a more modern time and, and they're expecting to be interacting that way. But I think in terms of being a journalist covering the election, it's different than it might have been 20, 30 years ago when these concerns weren't top of mind because they just didn't exist. So I want to shift focus now to uh, your piece about the youth vote, mm -hmm. uh, specifically, you know, high schoolers and college educated uh, or, or college students, excuse me, um, in the caucuses. Uh, you mentioned, you know, you you, you speak in the story about how uh, Senator Sanders has the highest percentage of young voters supporting him out of every, any one of the Democratic candidates at, at this point, according to polling. Uh, that being said, you know, you were uh, you attended the uh, Drake Mock Caucus event that happened last night and Sanders failed to reach viability. Uh, do you read into that at all? Or do you think that's just a factor of maybe Drake's uh, on campus organizations for uh, candidates Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg just kind of did a better job getting people to that event? Yeah, I don't I don't know if I want to analyze that based off of one small sample group of I think it was 185 people that attended Drake's caucus last night um, or, or earlier this week. And I mean, yeah, I think 
Sanders has always done a really good job. He did the same thing in 2016 where they kind of did some underground outreach, whether that was online or, you know, just kind of silently working hard and, and not making it well known. And we kind of noticed that this this cycle as well. We only recently found out um, they, they told us they have more than 250 organizers in the state, which was more than 100 people that we had previously reported just a couple weeks before. So they like to keep quiet and just kind of keep their head down and do the work. Um, that being said, I do know that, you know, Warren and Buttigieg specifically and, and Kamala Harris when she was still in the race were really focusing on college organizing specifically um, because invigorating the youth vote, especially people that weren't able to caucus or weren't able to vote and they're new voters for the first time, like that's just, you know, number one step to getting new people to vote and to be involved in in the caucuses. Um, so, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. Yes, sir. The, the caucus is or the mock caucus is representative of what we'll see with Sanders, but we'll just have to wait and see. So it, it might not be representative of what we see with Sanders, but do you think that we can learn something from those mock caucus results that we saw at Drake? Uh, do you think what value do you do you think that you can extrapolate from that mock caucus and those results? I mean, I think for me personally, um, it's a great sample of how caucus night is going to go, how quickly it's going to go with the new rules that we're seeing um, this cycle with only there being two alignments and the timing and viability and all of that. Um, you know, we saw that, that Buttigieg and Warren were the only two camps that were viable. And then you kind of watch people and their thought process and how they're going to realign. Bernie Sanders' team, like, didn't really choose to realign. And, like, that might be something that we see on caucus night. Joe Biden actually brought it up at his event today um, when he was asked if if um, Democrats are, should align behind one candidate if it's Bernie Sanders. And he said, yes, absolutely. Like, we need to align with behind whoever it is. And he noted that the Bernie Sanders group last night here at Drake didn't realign. And, and like, his supporters, he wasn't viable as well. They're, they all went to either Buttigieg or Warren for the most part, and they they were, you know, unified in that. But he he made the point that if that's the case, that on caucus night at various precincts, that those those Sanders supporters should choose to go somewhere else. So in your piece about youth voting, uh, you really start off the piece by uh, kind of describing how President Obama did so well in 2008 at reaching out to young students, especially young students in high school. Uh, you then juxtapose this with uh, some quotes from students in Ames uh, that are see- they're at, at the same location of an Amy Klobuchar event, uh, but they kind of lack some knowledge about the caucuses. They're not particularly motivated to go out and vote. Uh, have you seen campaigns this cycle reaching out to young voters, uh, particularly high schoolers, at the rates that the Obama campaign did? Or is that something that maybe the campaigns aren't doing as much as they did in 2008? Sure. So yeah, when I was talking to Rachel, who was the youth director for Obama in 2008 for this story that's also up on NBCNews.com, I was super fascinated when she made the point that she had her organizers go out and speak to high school government classes and just to educate them on the caucuses. They weren't necessarily talking about Obama specifically. If they had questions about Obama, they could answer them. But basically, it was walking these high school students, whether they be 17 and a half, 18, like ready to caucus, on what the process is. Because, again, this is their first time doing it. They don't know what's happening. And then when they realize and they're thinking about who they're caucusing for, they're like, oh, hey, I I heard about this from the Obama organizer. Let me check him out. And they also did the, the specific outreach in terms of when Senator Ob- then Senator Obama was here, they would set aside meet and greet specifically with students. And and I think like any voter, any demographic of voter, they just want to feel included. And if you reach out to them and you include them in conversations and you tell them that they matter, whether it's young voters, minority voters, 
older voter, like anybody, like they just anyone wants to feel included. And that's what I think a democracy in general is is for. Um, and so I was super shocked to hear how almost simple <laughs> that seemed in terms of how Obama captured that youth vote, because I haven't heard that that organizers have been doing that explicitly with high school government classes. I, I interviewed some students over at Roosevelt High School in Des Moines, and you know Elizabeth Warren had come by um, their school during the day. They held a youth uh, education forum where several candidates came. Pete Buttigieg has done an event there, so they've had access to candidates in terms of events, but it doesn't seem like there's been that specific outreach on high school campuses. Um, on another note, though, I know that NextGen has done a ton of work on college campuses throughout Iowa in terms of um, of registering voters and, and, and educating them on the caucus process. But of course, they're not behind one certain candidate, although obviously Tom Steyer founded NextGen, but he is now no longer affiliated. Um, but that's kind of that's the outreach we're seeing in terms of outside of social media. Um, I, I heard a lot of students tell me that they've seen ads on YouTube and Snapchat and TikTok and like that's how they're learning about a lot of their candidates. Um rather than like the specific, you know, student meet and greets that Obama did. So one thing that I've seen uh, following my friends on social media is whenever they go and see a candidate, they're always posting that picture on Twitter, Instagram, Mm -hmm. Facebook. How has social media and specifically selfies, other pictures with candidates, been able to kind of take the the you know grassroots retail politicking of the Iowa caucuses and put it online for young people to see in that space? Yeah, I think actually um, m- one of my colleagues, Alex Seitzwald, wrote a really fascinating piece on this earlier in the campaign over the summer when we still had you know, 25 plus Democratic candidates. But one of the things that is really interesting this cycle is the amount of selfies that we see because it is just free advertising. You get a picture, you get a selfie with a candidate you went to see, you post it on Instagram, Facebook, they don't have to do anything. They don't like the candidate doesn't have to plug an ad anywhere. You're they're seeing, say you're looking at your Facebook feed, you're seeing your friend who you trust and you value with X or Y candidate. That's why Elizabeth Warren has spent hours on hours doing selfie lines with supporters like she will stay until the very last person wants to take a selfie with her joe biden will go around and take people's phones from their hands and take selfies with them um you know the photo line has been a very prominent thing that we've seen at campaign events this cycle that were not necessarily you know an absolute thing that was going to happen in past cycles and so um plus it gives you time it's like it's the intimacy factor like you're leaning in you're giving someone a hug you're taking a selfie or a photo with them you get a quick exchange you know, in the photo line and like all that just goes even more towards the retail politics that is super necessary for the Iowa caucuses. So, Mara, you're an embed. You've been here for a long time in the state of Iowa, and I'm sure that you've gathered quite a few Iowa caucus stories that when you look back on your time in this state, you're going to remember. Are there any stories that you think that come to mind uh, when you think about really unique Iowa caucus stories that you really just couldn't get anywhere else? Yeah, I mean... First off, I th- like I equate my Iowa caucus experience as kind of like my adult study abroad experience. Every other network embed that came out here to work, we I mean, I found out I was moving to Iowa on a Thursday and I got here on a Tuesday or something crazy like that. We all shipped off here. We didn't really know each other. My colleague Priscilla, when we first moved out here, like I had met her two weeks before. And the same way with study abroad, you're going to a new place. You don't know it that well. You're kind of crammed together with people you don't know. You're trying this whole new thing, but you all have the same like interest and value of what you're looking to do. Um, so that's been really awesome. And I don't think that that would happen anywhere else um, or, or doing anything else like this. This campaign coverage experience is just 
absolutely unique. Um, and I value all the friendships that I've made. And I'm going to be very sad to leave the Hawkeye State. I think, I mean, um, you know, the embed experience is something on the candidate side is something that is just so interesting because you see these candidates, you know, all day, every day, bouncing around, you get to know their personalities and kind of like their jokes and, you know, you interact with them off camera and, and, and all of that. And I don't know if I have like one specific thing that's kind of just like, oh my gosh, but you do learn like the human side of these people. Like it's, it's a super interesting look at these candidates that most everybody else doesn't get to have. I think the thing that like really stands out to me, for example, um, I guess if I had to name one story, Andrew Yang um, over the state fair, the Iowa state fair, which was phenomenal and so much fun to cover everybody with all the pork chops and the rides and all of that in the middle of all of that all of that that was um right after the El Paso shooting in Texas so Beto O'Rourke was still a candidate at the time but didn't come up but Michael Bloomberg who was not running at the time ran the gun sense violence for or gun violence forum that happened in Des Moines and all the candidates came and it was a very emotional event like in the middle of this like super fun insane fair kind of vibe and so you have candidates coming straight like from the fair doing their their soapbox speech coming on stage, um, you know, talking about something that's very emotional and just hard in terms of gun violence and reform and gun control and all of that. And Andrew Yang is up on stage and he hears this story um, about this woman who, and I don't remember all the specifics, but this woman was telling a story about one of her children was shot and the other child watched it happen and saw their sibling die. And it was just this incredibly moving story and Andrew Yang just completely broke down on stage. He was absolutely sobbing. And after he wrapped up on stage, he moved over. And what happens at these forums is you go into these gaggle rooms um, and reporters can ask um, any questions. So a gaggle is when any time a reporter can kind of throw all these questions. Um, And from there, you know, emotions just completely change. You're getting different questions. um, And I think this kind of exemplifies the roller coaster that is like the emotional campaign trail. But from there, he starts talking about... um, he kind of just like rails on Donald Trump and starts talking about how, you know, he could beat him in a, in a push-up contest or like Donald Trump, the only thing he could beat him at is because he's so dumb or he's so fat. And I just remember like looking at this juxtaposition of this emotional ride and you're like, you just went from, from crying on stage to just like attacking the president, which like we hear them do all the time, the Democratic candidates. But it was just it was one of those things where we're kind of like, wow, this is a jarring, crazy intimate experience (laughs) so um yeah that was odd and finally mara uh, where can we follow your reporting where can we follow you on social media and uh how can uh we keep 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 on track with uh with what you're doing at nbc sure so nbc has tons of platforms you can see all of our embeds reporting um on nbcnews.com msnbc a lot of our work goes towards today's show nightly news um snapchat the stay tuned show um i'm personally on twitter at mora barrett nbc uh, my instagram's the same i'm probably better in terms of political stuff on Twitter. Um, but yeah, NBC Embeds, we're all, we're all over the place. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Dennis Goldford has been at Drake since 1985. He received his BA in political science and philosophy from the University of Michigan and a master's of letters of, in philosophy from Oxford University and a master's and PhD in political science from the University of Chicago. Professor Goldford teaches in the areas of political theory and constitutional law. 
He has written The American Constitution and the Debate Over Originalism and has also written with co-author Hugh Weinbrenner, The Iowa Precinct Caucuses, The Making of a Media Event. Professor Goldford, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. So I actually want to talk uh, about that book that I mentioned. Uh, The book that you contributed to calls the caucuses a media event. Uh, Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, the caucuses uh, are an event in which all sorts of people from uh, inside Iowa and especially outside Iowa, uh, they talk in terms of delegates. Well, just to give you an example, this year at the Democratic National Convention, there will be, uh, I think it's 3,979 pledge delegates. I will have a whole 41 of those, which is 1% and change, basically. So it's not as though the Iowa caucuses yield a big haul of delegates. This year, I think on Super Tuesday in a month, um, something like 1,350 delegates, plus or minus, will be awarded. That's huge. 41 delegates are not. So what's important about Iowa? Iowa is important because uh, the caucuses and the results offer media who are very hungry for the horse race information an initial indicator, barometer, weather vane, if you will, about what real voters, not a polling sample, not a man-on-the-street interviews, but real voters who are politically engaged, extremely interested, and very knowledgeable, think about their menu of choices for the nominee for their party. So in that sense, um, What's significant about the Iowa caucuses is not that a certain number of delegates are chosen, but rather the meaning of the caucuses as uh, a marker for the media and political and other such observers to know the state of the race. Well, and that's an interesting idea that you talk about, that it's really a media concept, because uh, earlier this month, Politico published a story titled Iowa Matters Less Than Ever in 2020. Uh, It points out that candidates have spent fewer days in Iowa in 2020 than they had in previous caucus cycles, and really attributes this to changes that the DNC made, such as adding South Carolina and Nevada into the early state mix to quickly follow Iowa. Do you think that the influence of the Iowa caucuses is diminishing? Well, you know, we'd say in the first place that there's a symbiotic relationship between the press and the candidates. As long as the press thinks Iowa's important, the candidates will think Iowa's important. And as long as the candidates think Iowa is important, the press will think Iowa is important. That being said, we remember again that there are at least 48 states around the country that really hate the position Iowa is in in this presidential nomination process. The only state that basically protects Iowa position, Iowa's position besides Iowa is New Hampshire because they're both two small states whom everybody ignores after the first caucus and the first primary. Um, So there's always been this pressure to defend the position of the caucuses as important. I think that um, it's not so much the addition, and that's not recent, of uh, uh, South Carolina and Nevada to pick up more African-American voters in South Carolina, more Latino voters in in Nevada. Um, It's not so much the addition of those states that's made much of a difference, but instead, I think this year at least, It's been that parallel and counteracting, if you will, sequence of debates the Democratic National Committee has organized. So if the traditional role of the caucuses has been in effect not to pick the president, 
not even so much necessarily to pick the nominee, but to winnow out the weaker campaigns and candidacies. Um, I think that uh, Iowa has been doing that, but at the same time, those debates and whether or not somebody gets into the main debate or even gets on the debate stage at all, that's functioned as, as part of that winnowing process as well. And at best is counterbalanced what the caucuses do. Um, at worst is diminishing what the caucuses do. And looking at this caucus cycle, specifically in 2020, it's really difficult to look at it without considering the effects of the impeachment trial. You know, first off, I'm curious what you think the impeachment trial, uh, how it could affect former Vice President Joe Biden's chances, because his son is at the heart of the allegations against President Trump. And then secondly, uh, do you think the fact that the senators running for president, Senator Warren, Sanders and Klobuchar, the fact that they must be present at the impeachment trial and not campaigning in Iowa and meeting voters, how do you think that that will affect the results on caucus night? Well, first of all, I think in a sense the the impeachment proceedings have been um, for the candidates in Iowa directly uh, important, but nonetheless background noise. In other words, the candidates are are running their campaigns, meeting voters, doing the kind of retail po- uh, politicking for which Iowa is famous. And um, the impeachment proceedings are operating in the background, I think, in terms of what the campaigns are doing. In terms of the question of how that affects the senators who have to be in Washington, those senatorial candidates in particular that are running and can't be here in Iowa, uh, Klobuchar, Sanders, Warren, and don't forget Bennett from Colorado, of course, who's not having much success on the campaign trail. I think if this had occurred, um, this set of proceedings had occurred um, a year ago or even six months ago, it would have been more problematic. But at this point, I think the candidates are so well known uh, that, uh, you know, the captain may not be on the bridge, but there are plenty of first mates to steer the ship. The one candidate that have might, that for which this might be a little more of a drawback, I'm not saying a 100-pound weight to carry, but a, a little more of a drawback, would be Senator Klobuchar, because despite being from a neighboring state, Minnesota, um, her organization seems to be not as extensive as that of, say, uh, uh, Warren or, or, or Sanders or even Biden's, perhaps. Um, and so... She has a little bit more of a drawback in that regard. Again, overall, I don't think it makes a huge difference, but I like to say that in any kind of tight race, a feather on the scale makes the difference. And you may have a couple of feathers operating here. Well, in shifting away from that, uh, you in our cla- in your class uh, that you teach, you talk about the idea of populism, um, really, and what President Trump did to kind of use populism and use a populist uh, me- message to really kind of propel himself to the presidency, his own form of populism. Mm-hmm. Are there any Democrats that you see in this caucus cycle doing a good job creating their own form of populism that you think could maybe draw voters and, and maybe a Trump-ish strategy that they could use to vault them? to the presidency? Well, I think that um, in a way the more progressive candidates, by which I mean Warren and Sanders, have articulated more of a liberal populist message. Remember, populism is basically the idea that the, the small person, the regular everyday person, male or female, is getting a raw deal from the government. 
Um, and uh, liberal populism says that government is acting on behalf of the wealthy. And that's what you hear from Warren and Sanders. Conservative populism says government is disadvantaging the everyday person by acting on behalf of uh, people who aren't really Americans or don't belong here or haven't carried their weight in the world. So conservative populism targets more um, immigrants uh, and uh, has a certain racial dimension to that. Historically, we find that in American political culture. So in that sense, I think that when every other word out of Sanders' mouth is millionaires and billionaires or Warren talking about corruption and the wealthy and powerful, that's more of a populist message. The problem for them is that, uh, in essence, uh, Democrats lost the election uh, last time for essentially uh, the belief that they were not paying attention to the concerns of white working class voters. And remember that the margin uh, overall for president and then candidate Trump was 78,000 votes spread across uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. So it was a very close election in that sense. Uh, if those 78,000 votes had gone the other way, uh, Hillary Clinton would have been president. But the problem for uh, Democrats is that white working class voters, to a great extent, think that Democrats don't talk to them anymore. They think they represent um, women and racial and sexual minorities. And uh, whether that's the case or not, that seems to be the, uh, the concern that white working class voters have. So from their point of view, Democrats don't talk to them anymore. Well, I'm curious. One of the ideas that you hit it on hit on there was uh, kind of the liberal progressive uh, mm -hmm. Warren and Sanders message. Uh, many polls have shown that Democrats' first priority in 2020 is beating President Trump, and this has kind of forced many Democrats to look very pragmatically at the candidates and think about who can win a general election. A lot of people looking at somebody like Vice President Joe Biden. How do you think that pragmatic voting preferences, rather than the picking the candidate that perfectly matches your personal political beliefs. How do you think that will play out on caucus night if it will be a factor? Well, it will be a factor. I call that the fight between the head and the heart. I mean, your heart tells you you love and adore some particular candidate. That candidate speaks for you. You feel energized and enthused by what that candidate has to say. That candidate makes your pulse race. Okay, that's the head. Uh, excuse me, the heart. The head is, okay, objectively, coldly, however a particular candidate strikes me, whether he or she makes my heart race or not and my pulse race, does that candidate have a better chance of beating an incumbent president? Now, ideally for such people, that's one and the same person, right? Uh, my person both makes my pulse race and I think can beat the president. But if there's a distinction, if, yeah, this candidate makes my pulse race, but I think another candidate may have a better chance at beating the president, that's the person who's in this dilemma. Which way do I go, that person will ask. Um, the difficulty for Democrats is whoever wins the nomination, that will mean all sorts of other candidates didn't win the nomination. And will those supporters show up for the nominee that was not their first choice? Um, I've heard of some Sanders supporters saying it's Bernie or the highway. In other words, they're either, either going to have Sanders as the nominee or they're simply not going to show up Election Day. If that occurs there with Sanders or other candidates who may not end up becoming a nominee, Democrats have a big problem. Final question, Professor Goldford, where are you going to be on mm -hmm. caucus night? 
Well, for years, I have done uh, political analysis for KCCI-TV here in Des Moines, the CBS affiliate. And um, I will be down at the station, although doing some phone interviews, but um, I'll be on the 5 o'clock newscast, the 6 o'clock newscast, and then I think from 6.30 on, we're there for the duration. Thank you so much. I know you're very busy this time of year. I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to, to be on the show. It's a pleasure. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you.